I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England, visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives. We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange. If you are leaving the train here, mind the gap between the train and platform edge. I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. Up until now, we've looked at what some of the digital labour is, but what about where it is? During my travels around Science Museum Group, I realised that digital labour is distinctive and context-specific, depending not only on which museum you're in, but which part of the museum you're in. In other words, digital work is diverse in character and content within the different subterrains of this museum service. In this, the first of two episodes, I'm going to show why it's useful to recognise that digital labour operates in the museum in differentiated, site-specific ways. We've already seen new ways of doing things through the digital labour we've uncovered, from new strategies to standardising collections and content, to new approaches to digital curating, to the role and import of emotion and care in digitisation practices. But there's something else taking place within and alongside all of this. New forms of digital labour in museums are promoting new models of learning in museums with technology. Models of self-learning, of what some might term connected learning, and of what we could call digital autodidacticism. Now bear with me, I'll explain more about that as we go on. These on-the-job kinds of learning are arising out of informal and often unrehearsed moments of digital experimentalism. They involve individually motivated and sometimes collectively motivated digital upskilling and, commonly, they respond to a need or an urgency to do something differently or better. It seems to me that these new distributed practices of digital labour and digital learning are allowing not only new approaches to museum work, but new kinds of individual and collective agency in museum workforces. This is Manchester, Victoria. Let's begin by looking at where digital learning is still seemingly in retrograde. Here's Dr Stephen Leach, curator of exhibitions at the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester, who spoke to me very pragmatically about how digital is not as much at the heart of curatorial practice as it might be. I have a sense that digital is probably not where it needs to be in the work that I do, I think. So currently, digital is embedded in a kind of set of established processes for developing physical exhibition spaces and experiences. Um, So whether that's, I don't know, like a creative commission that we sometimes do for an exhibition, so like a big set piece. So for one of the projects I'm working on at the moment, that might be composing a new uh, piece of music. So I'm working on an exhibition on music um, uh, with some really lovely visuals, that kind of stuff. Um, or it might be the kind of uh, talking head video content for, you know, to kind of enhance or animate an object or story. So there's like that kind of 
on-site physical representation, which is another layer to the, uh, you know, the people you might meet or the stories you'll encounter or interpreting objects. So that's where digital currently sits. Um, but I think there's a, a kind of parallel in which the, the importance of digital and the who you can reach with the digital platform. Uh, in an ideal world, you would have the parallel processes or even joint processes where, you know, we would talk at the beginning of an exhibition, not just what's the what's the concept and how do we represent this physically, but, you know, what's the more intangible or digital stuff that people can um, engage with online or in, in different modes. So that could be, I don't know, a different kind of experience based on the same themes and concepts that you commission or, you know, have a separate budget for or uh, it could be that kind of simple do you want to represent that space three in a 3D sense um, through I don't know um, 3D scans that kind of stuff so like it, it, it's just those questions I think is what I'm getting at where where does digital sit in an exhibition and what how do you recreate not necessarily recreate that experience but how do you create a separate digital experience that encapsulates the same ideas or similar ideas or themes and I just don't think that is there yet so where digital or online content especially comes in is at the end of an exhibition development process so but yeah absolutely hopeful i think there's so much potential for like you said enhancing experiences on site but also um bringing some of those stories and lifting them and and embedding them in different networks and, and and creating different experiences I wanted to start with Stephen because what he says here indicates that where you might expect to find the more forward-thinking experimental activities in museums, within curatorial, in exhibition design and development, is where it often struggles to be embedded. As we continue, we'll see that it is in fact within the pockets where you expect it less in the more administrative, infrastructural parts of the museum that new opportunities for knowledge and learning with technology are taking place. Like Stephen, the fact that digital does not necessarily sit in the middle of curatorial practice is also felt by John Stack, Director of Digital for the group. I think it's because exhibitions and rehangs of the collection, displays and new galleries exist as projects and they're managed... Okay, there's a couple of different things going on here. One is that they're sort of managed as a physical manifestation and therefore the therefore the project management is a kind of waterfall uh, process of, of like these are all the things that need doing and we do them in this order and this feeds into this thing and then at the end here we will have a glass of champagne on the opening night hmm. and then it's and then there's maybe a little bit of snagging afterwards and it's almost done and it's sort of and so the the, the methodology and all the risks are associated with this kind of opening thing. Yeah. And museums like really polished and beautiful and finalised physical manifestations. And so everything feeds towards that. Mm-hmm. Sally MacDonald, director of the Science and Industry Museum, also recognised this as a blockage within the group's success in digital. When I think about some of the more traditional museum practices that we're involved with like curation or conservation Mm -hmm. um um you know as a curator um Mm -hmm. which which a number of larger museums do um uh, and and arguably we shouldn't do maybe 
arguably it should be part of everyone's job but actually that that means that it's a whole big area that we're not we haven't been collecting and we certainly haven't been collecting in consistently um so we've got a little group now of people who are talking about contemporary and digital collecting but um they're not the same thing and um and uh, you know there's no there's no one person who's kind of leading that that charge i guess For Stephen on the curatorial team, there is a recognition that museum curators don't gravitate towards digital because it fundamentally challenges ideas of object authenticity. I think the the value is in what's perceived as the authenticity of the object. So um, the, I don't know, I think it's the Ruskin idea of kind of um, things you know the, the 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 life and historicity of a, of a thing and its biography being accrued over time i don't know by the many hands that touch it that kind of thing um and those kind of layers of history are literally embedded in the physical form and i think that's you know often that is a, a really powerful and a draw for people and why people visit museums but i think within the work that we have there's this whole history and theory of like why we conserve objects and what their intrinsic value is and I think that is comes across in the the kind of priorities that we have in terms of curatorial work. So we're trained in the kind of objectness and the materiality of things, and digital feels less tangible, a bit more kind of uh, immaterial, and not in that kind of lovely numinous sense where, like, you know, objects have all this weird intangible power. It's more like non-existent I think so like it it seems like a second best I think so if you had a a digital rendition of something it's always the inferior twin to the physical thing Um, we're not thinking about the digital form in its own right we're thinking about how do we recreate a physical structure almost or a, a physical sense or like can we recreate something akin to materiality for objects that's one way of looking at them so I think while we are going off in lots of different amazing interesting directions with digital stuff there is a real like I don't know almost (laughs) seemingly innate desire to also hold on to something physical and again it's not like being disembodied is it like a lot of these like digital things are you know they use your same physical senses they uh, are often experienced in a kind of very physical way um Even now, in 2022, digital can feel overwhelming to those who have been trained in the handling, conservation and interpretation of physical objects. Part of this is down to the legacy of museum practice, which has for centuries placed emphasis on the material. For curatorial teams such as Stevens, digital is distributed in a very specific way, as another tool for object display, usually as a complement to, rather than an alternative form of, interpretation and reach. And also, digital feels like all the possibilities rolled into one. It feels like mm. so vast and innumerable and, like, and I'm sure it's not, again, uh, but it feels like there's so many possibilities. It's endless and a bit restless. I think that's with with a physical space, you can make it, you can leave it, people can come to see it, but it feels like it's hard to create these discrete boundaries around digital. It feels like there's always something new, another thing to try, another thing to mm-hmm. um, get to understand or wrap your head around. I feel like you don't have those issues with a set of 
lovely old objects or or even new ones if you're doing contemporary collecting and things like that so mm-hmm. i think there's a bit of restlessness and unease around that from my, that's what i feel anyway myself i think there's a especially national museums there's a so much process and stuff which can be great and can give you a really real like good structure to make sure you get quality stuff mm-hmm. but it's pretty risk averse i think mm-hmm. so um and there's a long process and uh, probably and like i say you don't often question the foundations of that structure and what how you're creating or why you're creating in a certain way that's the this is how we have x people from these teams and they all come together and you have these conversations and uh which can be really enriching but it yeah it probably doesn't give you that much space for experimentation yeah it's it's just a, the conversation isn't there around being directly experimental or like mm. let's test this thing out it's this thing must work must function in a particular way so curators are probably not asked to innovate very often is the mm. other thing so curators are like yeah. the the repositories of knowledge and they're the ones who kind of are the point of reference in lots of ways and they're the, the experts around objects but they're probably not asked to be and lots of curators are very innovative in their practices but they're probably not asked to be uh innovators i don't think they're expected to be conservative with the small c i guess one of the first people i interviewed for the hidden constellation was mark cutmore head of commercial experiences at science museum group Mark was around at the opening of the new Wonder Lab at Science Museum in South Kensington in 2016. And has since spearheaded digital first projects such as the popular Power Up, an exhibition of over 160 consoles as well as hundreds of games, held at the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester and the Science Museum in London. I was struck by how Mark considered his self-understanding of technology and innovation and the way his knowledge was based on personal interest and passion rather than anything more formally acquired. I'm not that technically capable myself. I don't have a degree in engineering. I don't have a degree in computer programming. I'm passionate about these things. I'm interested in these things. But um, I think for me, for my own skill set, it's, it's really about... Uh, a keen interest in these in these disciplines in these areas it's a thirst for knowledge it's the first to to become a a semi-expert in these areas without trying to take away from the actual experts the actual technically skilled people who who do amazing jobs and and i'm very lucky to to be surrounded by those people in this organization one such actual technically skilled person is wasim arkadin digital analyst for science museum group For me, what is interesting about Wasim's work with data, aside from being an example of hidden but fundamentally important digital labour in the group, is the way that he prides self-learning in his work, founded, like Mark, upon personal curiosity and passion. I'm the digital analyst for the Science Museum Group. That's my official job title. And the main tools that I use are the Google products, which are Google Analytics and Google Tag Manager. I use those on a daily basis. I work with more or less every single department uh, in the museum, uh, from the marketing teams to the comms teams, with the research teams. Even though we're five museums, we've got possibly over 20 sites because each museum has several sites. Mm -hmm. They're not all bundled up into one. So, you know, obviously the more sites, the more data. You know, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't hectic or it wasn't, uh, there wasn't any pressure 
but it's it's sort of a rewarding pressure if you know what I mean yeah. when I analyze data and I feel like I've helped uh, a department achieve what they want to achieve it, you know it's it's a good feeling it's a nice feeling in the past they used to say the most valued resource was oil now the most valued resource is data for me as an analyst I always say if it's not data then you're guessing uh, you know I think the way forward is for any organization to be data driven and obviously the more time that passes the more data you collect the better your decisions are i think um all organizations have to you know work on that otherwise um technology is going to be moving and any organization that doesn't isn't data driven is going to stay stay behind if you haven't already i recommend watching computer scientist and futurist jaron lanier's video jaron lanier fixes the internet like Wasim, Jaron describes how data is the new oil. He goes on to explain how we, as participants on social media and other online communities, are the fuel in this new shadow economy. While Jaron's take on data is dystopian, Wasim provides an alternative, more optimistic perspective. This was notably the case when he describes the way in which he has grown into his job role at Science Museum Group and the culture of self-teaching, which maintains his knowledge and his enthusiasm for the work he does. Even as a, as a digital analyst, uh, I need to keep up with the new technology and, and understanding. Well, Seema, I really wanted to ask you about how you train yourself and how you develop when it's so fast-paced. Because I, I feel like that's something, maybe it's me being naive, but like it doesn't get talked about that much, how like you're in a kind of job now where you have to keep up with all the latest trends and the changes yeah. and the new programs and software coming in like you're constantly having to learn it's not like I don't know what your degree was in what was your degree uh, it was called internet computing oh wow yeah but uh, presumably what you covered then is different from what you do now is it uh, you know actually I thought about this before now I mean at university you'll find different courses you'll get courses in social media you know, uh, specifically data. Back then, there was only computer science and internet computing. Internet computing, when I when I graduated in 2005, it was quite, actually, it was a new course uh, back then, but it was probably the closest thing to social media and data now. Okay. Yeah, because there was, a, there, there was some programming in there, but at the same time, there was um, something called human-computer interaction, uh, understanding how a human's behavior with a computer and that was before social media got really uh, famous such as Facebook and Twitter and so I guess my course was the closest thing then but what made me interested in data specifically uh, one day I was working in, a, in one of the companies and I was helping with sort of designing the page putting in some HTML code for the buttons here and there uh, different colors and so on and my manager's like do you do you, um, do you know how to do tracking and I was like what's that I think that was like two, 2008 you know it was very or 2007 uh, and he's like well tracking helps you uh, understand the data that's coming into the site and then we can uh, that will help you, us understand wh what people are interested in and that was like the basics really basics back then even before Google Tag Manager really started you know, it wasn't really a big thing then. Google Analytics was, you know, was just at the beginning. And then for some reason, I, I really, I fell in love with, I was like, wow, okay, so you put that code and then we can see who's coming in and 
who's going out and, you know, and then I liked that. And then over time I started when they introduced Google Tag Manager and, mm-hmm. um, and basically what Google Tag Manager does, it, it is sort of an advanced version of just analyzing. It helps you track every single thing on the site where they clicked, uh, how long they clicked for. Did If, if you had a, a video em- embedded in the site, how long did they watch the video for? Uh, did they pause it? How many times did they pause it? So very detailed. So I went back home that day and I was like, you know what, I'm, I really need to do more research on this. So I started opening different blogs, going onto the site, seeing what other professionals, uh, you know, what, how they're doing things. And I started sort of learning myself at home, uh, even though it took me hours and hours of work. But I, but th- th- this is what you do when you like something. You mm. you spend hours on it and you enjoy it and time will, will just pass. So slowly but surely I got into where I am now. But over time I started making sure that I am on, you know, on top of the technology. So every time they introduce something new, a new product comes out, uh, I want to learn how to how to use that product because obviously it helps me advance also my career and mm-hmm. and, and uh, it's you know it gets more more and more in demand uh, in the market as well. Wasim talking about self-learning at home could be described as a kind of digital autodidacticism, a continuous self-education with digital. We can see his participation in a self-taught, peer-led online community of other digital analysts as a powerful form of interest-driven learning, one which blends formal academic training, in Wasim's case at least, with new opportunities that emerge through experimentation as part of this larger community. In education circles, this process would be described as connected learning. Connected learning is the idea that through a combination of personal interests, supportive relationships and opportunities, all made possible in an age of abundant access to information and social connection, which embraced diverse backgrounds and the interests of different people, a more holistic pedagogy is possible. What Wasim shows us is the importance, indeed the necessity, of self-learning for him to develop and evolve his skills and knowledge for his museum work. In other words, self-learning is vital for future-proofing his career in the museum. In the world of digital analysts, like all the digital analysts out there, do they do what you do? Do they go and sort of self-teach? Like... Or do they? Or is that like your thing? Or uh, like, is there a cult? There's kind of a culture of that, though, isn't there? Yeah, there there is. I think, I think most people who are into data, in my opinion, are uh, self-taught, or they're interested in, in the subject and they went out there to teach themselves more. So I, I'm guessing. I mean, one of the bloggers that I follow, for example, Julius, he does his own courses online. And I've actually had a chat with him directly once. Uh, I had a question that was years ago. And he's, and I remember he, he sent me a message and he's like, you know, you have to keep trying, trial and error. So, so this is what he's been doing. He's been doing trial and error. Because I said to him, I asked him a specific question. I was like, what would the outcome be? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, I can try it for you because I'm, I don't know. But I can, so why don't you try it yourself and, and see what the outcome is? So I'm like, okay. He's the type that goes very obvious to me that he goes back home and he tries things and sees what the, if they work. If they work, then he talks about them on, on his uh, YouTube channel because he's talking about something that he's tried and, and tested. So, yeah, I mean, you know, most people in this field are definitely, uh, 
they want to be in you know they want to be data analysts r- rather than it's just a career if you know what i mean or, or a course that they had to do or something like that there are resonances here with what we explored in episode two, when we considered how the digital culture developed through online communities such as YouTube can stretch established processes in museums in progressive, exciting ways. Then I talked about David Gauntlet, who maintains that platforms like YouTube provide a framework not only for participation, but for a new global community of everyday users. For Wasim and his peers, YouTube is an alternative educational environment, a valuable site of connected learning. Crucially, it offers an active form of learning which at the same time reinforces participants' identities as experts in their field. A more powerful and richer form of expertise than you might find solely through academic training. When you describe it like that, it makes it, it feels kind of like a vocation. It's like something you kind of commit to and then you're in and then you That's want to it. keep yeah, yeah. going. That sense of achievement and having that sort of control, if you know what I mean, and, and, and information and giving it out to others. I think that's that's one reason why I sort of uh, like that. So, you know, having data is, uh, I think it's also, it helps prove your point stronger yeah. than just giving an opinion, if you know what I mean. That's also another reason. Yeah. But in a way, like you talking about um, doing your internet computing course, like in a way you are a historian of what's happened with Google tracking yeah, in it, the it, last, like... It, exactly, yeah. You know, exactly. that's... And what an important history to, to know about. Like, probably informs how you understand what you're doing now. Oh, de- definitely, definitely. I mean, people who started, let's say, a year ago, they want to know about Google Analytics and Google Tag Manager. They're going to find it harder than those who started earlier. Um, I mean, those who started earlier using those technologies because they followed with the history. Yeah. They went step by step as, as it improved and as it advanced, they started training. Uh, but now if you start now, you're going to have to learn a whole lot of things that came to you at once mm-hmm. uh, rather than step by step. It was easier for me because the tool was very limited. And then when they, when they improved, I'll just learn or I'll, I'll understand what that improvement was and I'll just go step by step with, along with them. History is important, in my opinion, understanding with uh, with that software or tool or Google products or any actually any analytical tools, because uh, I know there's so many out there. Mm. Uh, some people use different ones. The communities from all over the world, first of all, yeah. not just from not just from the UK. Um, you'll find from India, from America, from Brazil, uh, Italy, uh, all over the world. Uh, you'll find young and old male and female there are more males uh, in in that community than females but but i've noticed in the youngsters are more a- active in the group than 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 the older people they're the ones who ask more questions uh, and the other thing i notice is the youngsters ask more complex questions the older generations are asking questions that for us it's easy that it's not hard to to figure out at all you know I, I, maybe i would say that now with with today's tools and technology uh, the young, youngsters are taking over. Uh, the new generation are sort of understanding the complexity more than the older generation. I mean, the community is quite big. It's maybe got 10K or 15K followers at the moment. Wow. But, but they are increasing more and more. So... 
If data analytics in museums can be considered as a kind of craft, a form of practice based on a tradition of constant experimentation, self-development and knowledge sharing, what is the relevance of this for the future of museum work more broadly? What might be gained by other departments and disciplines within the museum if they turn to Wasim and his personal methodology of self-learning for inspiration, for an alternative model of practice? Next, let's turn to another pocket of the group where digital autodidacticism has recently taken place. The following two people you're going to hear from, Kathy Pilkington and Tony Booth, are based at the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford. As I see it, their work together provides a great example of distributed digital labour in action and the associated self-learning that takes place. I'm Kathy Pilkington and I'm the marketing executive at the National Science and Media Museum. I um, have been for two months, previously was the communications officer um, since 2019 and my job mainly is to support the communications team and the, specifically the marketing manager in campaigns but I've taken on the digital stuff so like the social media, email, it's kind of like my main role um, as well as obviously supporting on campaigns and things so that's kind of my day-to-day is doing the digital side of the marketing. Yep so I'm Tony Booth I'm the associate curator of film at the National Science and Media Museum which essentially means that the cinematographic collections that we have here cameras projectors or related kinds of archives are my responsibility to care for interpret add to um, yeah, anything to do with those. So if anybody has any bizarre or not so bizarre questions about the film collection, they come to me. Particularly from the curatorial team side, a lot of our work is away from the collections or away from the objects physically, but also a proportion of that is actually working with the objects. Mm-hmm. And when you can't get into the place of work where the objects are stored, so during lockdown, obviously we weren't in the building, that does give some leeway opens up some time to do some other activities of which social media, blogging, etc. was was a great way to do that because you're still talking about the museum's collection, you're still getting information out there. When I spoke to Cathy and Tony, I was keen to understand the phenomenon of the Twitter exhibitions that had been created by the museum during the pandemic and how the writing of these had involved collaborative working across departments whilst challenging perceptions of what social media could do when the physical doors of the museum were closed. So it was actually our photography curator, Philip Roberts, did it off his own back on his own Twitter account to start with. Um, And then I said to him, we should be doing this from the museum's account. Um, So that kind of kicked off and Philip did the first couple. He did kaleidoscopes and he did Yorkshire Hollywood um, which were both really well received and people really liked them and then from there we kind of opened it out so that other curators could um, write about their own specific interests or like areas so like Annie our sound curator did one and Tony you've done some and um, yeah it was really nice it was kind of it was the collaboration that I'd been like hoping for but had never had the time mm-hmm. since I started because it was content that I would never have known about you know and and it was a way of like keeping us, keeping our museum like telling these stories, even though people couldn't come to see us. Mm. So it went really well. It had a lot of interest from lots of different people who I didn't. I don't think even knew we had a Twitter account. 
<laughs> I think I'm not on Twitter, so I'm not used to writing in that in that way. Mm. Um, and so it mm. was a bit of a kind of a learning curve, to be honest. Um, but actually, it's really interesting because it's, it's a very different way of writing for text in a gallery. It's even a different way of writing from a blog. You know, it's 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 very much its own thing. But it still enables you when you do a Twitter exhibition to go into some depth, mm. which sounds crazy when you say that in Twitter you can go in depth because the whole point is it's kind of brevity. But when you've got um, a thread of say a dozen images with some information which all kind of lead into each other in some way or relate to each other in some way, it does give you that level of a level of engagement that you wouldn't think you could get doing it that way. Um, and sometimes they can be serious, sometimes they can be silly, they can be a mixture. So it, it, it can be quite freeing, mm. I think, because it's more of a, more of a relaxed, playful platform. Um, and that's not to say when we're writing on our own blog, you can't get, you know, you can't show personality. You can, but it is very different. Mm. Um, and, a, and a different audience, I'm assuming, as well. It's important to pull out Tony's description of the Twitter exhibitions being a learning curve here. I'm interested in the way she describes writing text about objects for Twitter as distinct from, but also complementary to, more traditional modes of museum interpretation. In a nutshell, what we're seeing here is digital enabling new forms of learning for effective museum work. Back to Cathy. The way that I kind of work with our Twitter is that it's a completely separate audience from the museum's audience. They're a lot more spread out across the world and I think that they're a different age range than our exhibitions usually target. Mm. One thing that I like to keep in mind when I'm doing non-kind of like football driving posts on Twitter is to target people who've never even heard of the museum before, make it that like accessible Mm -hmm. and just relevant to anyone kind of thing. I think the content that we were putting out there with it was such a wide variety of stuff as well. Some of it really engaged with like a very local audience, like the Yorkshire stuff. Some of it was a bit more broad, like Tony did one on Dracula, which, you know, much more sort of like wide appeal. So I think it was a good mixture and it did definitely bring new people in. Yeah. But there's a bigger conversation here, isn't there, about how like social media is changing the tone or can change the tone of a museum, make it more informal have a different type of personality, move it away from, I don't know, pre-existing conceptions of it being more staid or elitist in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just um, offering a conversation, mm-hmm. kind of stepping away from, I mean, people come to us and come to a museum because they want to know something, often, you know, either physically they come or they will send us an inquiry, various questions, mm-hmm. and of course we want to answer those and be as helpful as possible. But that kind of implies that we know everything and we don't know everything because how could we? Yeah. Um, and so there's always something that we can learn from the people out there. And so I think it's just another way of enabling that conversation. So actually that conversation, the back and forth, I think is really important. And I think something like yeah. Twitter enables that. That's kind of part of a more broader movement within, within museums of representing different, different people mm. and their experiences. So it's not just the kind of great inventor story anymore. Mm. It's actually, okay, well, who was working on the factory line, actually putting these valves into the back of these televisions? Who were those people? And 
those stories are as valid as any others. And so if we can get that conversation going and retain that information and tell those stories, then that, that's all sort of good. Mm. The Twitter exhibitions during lockdown, as an exercise in digital autodidacticism for everyone who got involved with them, spurred a broader acknowledgement of the time and skill required by those working with social media. Here's Cathy. Yeah, I think some people just don't realise how long it takes or how much of a full-time job social on its own can be. Yeah. Um, and I think people just assume that you just, like, can just, you know, not, like, I'm not saying this is, like, a, a widely held belief, but I know that some people just don't see the value in it as much mm-hmm. um, or, like, how time-intensive it can be sometimes. Like, the other week I spent two hours making an Instagram reel, like, because... That's just how long things can take. Mm. Um, And yeah, I think people don't see it as such a big job as it actually is sometimes. It's its own sort of individual skill Mm. as well, which something that I really appreciated here was that how like honest everybody was that they weren't, like they couldn't write on Twitter and that it is difficult. I think the acknowledgement of that was really (laughs) nice. But yeah, I think the common misconception is that if you use social media in your personal life, you can do social media marketing or as a brand, and that's just not the case. It's a completely different set of skills, and it's nice to have it acknowledged, and people here know that. Um, and yeah, I can totally see that like digital teams are expanding quite rapidly because mm. it is a specific skill set that people will have. Yeah. Something that I would really like is for digital to be part of everybody's job, yeah. You know, on, on even on like tiny levels, when we were closed, it was so important, and it was like social media was the museum essentially. Um, and I think it would be nice if we carried that on to build on, you know, the work that my team have been doing, and because I think it's it's such an important tool for engagement for the brand for like getting people into the museum but also you know there are other ways that people can engage with us it would be nice if like more people were it was just something that was embedded in everybody's work Mm. somehow I think that that would be like long term what I would like to see here and across all museums to be honest yeah as you were both talking there it just really struck me how it's not it's not to be sniffed at that we've got a curator and a comms marketing person in the same room talking to each other about this stuff because that's just still not happening that much. So, like, there's a lot of... Last year, I got very into this idea of emotional labour, but, like, all the stuff that happens in the margins, you know, all that advocating. You know, Tony, you sound like you're a real advocate for online engagement now. And, you know, that stuff, it doesn't get sort of said for what it is but it's still work like it's a still it's like nurturing relationships and being a bit clued in to what might be good where and like you said a flexibility of approach and I don't know, I sort of think it should be celebrated really that like like you said like things Kathy you kind of said it you know I hope everyone realizes digital's in their job role a bit more but like we're not talking quite as much in silos maybe as we were before I'd like to think so I mean and I think this is a simple thing, but we sit in the same office. Well, yeah. So it's just little things like yeah. that. I think, well, normally, we yeah. Yeah, <laughs> before times. Um, we've got one office, and so the, the comms team, the curatorial team, 
exhibitions. Exhibitions team, the volunteer mm-hmm. manager. Um, so there's, there's quite a variety of different teams all in one space, which I think helps because even if you're not having a conversation, you can't hear what's going on. Yeah. yeah. So it's that informal knowledge exchange, which I think is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So informal knowledge exchange is helpful for creating and curating digital content and it is distributed in unique interactions depending on where you are in a museum. What we see through Cathy and Tony's collaboration are traces of a kind of maker culture, a homespun DIY response to a situation which brings together both old and new forms of museum practice, this time in Bradford. Like other digital projects explored in this series, I'm thinking of Philip and Aaron's collecting meme project here, discussed in episode two, This moment of experimentation and willingness to try out something digital subtly shifts more traditional perceptions within the museum of what objects can do, of who they are for, and the increasing value of the work done by those who can communicate using technology to different distributed audiences. There's much more to say about how distributed digital labour is surfacing new forms of self-learning in museums, hence why we've made this a two-part episode. But before we temporarily draw things to a close, I want to share some insights from digital entrepreneur Lopa Patel MBE, who sits on the board of trustees of the Science Museum Group and is part of the Digital Advisory Board for the museum. I asked Lopa how we might scale up digital courage in a group as vast as this. A wise person kind of said to me, sometimes when you're starting a project, you want to start with the outcome. So in writing terms, start as if you're writing a press release about the outcome. So when you've written that press release about the outcome of whatever it is you're doing, you then work backwards. You work backwards. Oh, is it going to be an event? Is it going to be a podcast? Is it going to be a project? Is it going to be whatever it is? Oh, who are the partners? Working backwards, backwards, Mm -hmm. backwards. Timeline, money, Mm -hmm. you know, and back Mm -hmm. to day zero. (laughs) and we don't do that as museums have done we start with day zero we build a a model we build a framework we discuss it a bit more so we're working from a to z and we need to start working from z to a we can harness the skills we have some incredible Mm. people we have some amazingly Mm. talented exceptional people um, and we've just got to change the way that they work. My mindset is to, to start embedding this digital first approach, perhaps uh, learn sort of agile methodology based on the digital first approach. Uh, yeah. You know, when I'm stuck, I kind of write the press release first and then that gives me, oh, yeah, but then I need to do that and then I need to do that and then I need to work with so and so and then I need that and this is how much money it's going to you know and so it does help sometimes because you're focusing on the outcome. I have a sense that slowly slowly the approach that Lopa is suggesting of starting with the outcome rather than with the established process is happening in distributed pockets of Science Museum Group and when these moments of distributed digital labour happen they bring with them a new spirit of digital autodidacticism, of lifelong self-learning with technology, 
which, in turn, enables greater agency and autonomy amongst those who practice them. I invite you to join me next in the second part of this two-part episode, where we'll be looking in more detail at how this spirit of self-learning is fostering greater links with new and often disenfranchised audiences at Science Museum Group. Thank you for listening. See you here next time at The Hidden Constellation. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr Sophie Frost. Voice actors are Chris Thorpe-Tracy, Reefa Thorpe-Tracy, Ben Murray and Stephen Orchard. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe-Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum Group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Don't fly out.